Welcome to the Reading Teachers Lounge. Come join the conversation with other curious teachers as they discover teaching strategies and resources to reach all of their learners. I'm Shannon. And I'm Mary. And together we bring an honest and experienced point of view to the topics we cover to shed light in best practices. Whether you're a new teacher seeking guidance, a seasoned pro looking for fresh ideas, or a curious parent, our community offers something for everyone. So grab your favorite cup of coffee or tea and cozy up in the virtual lounge with us and eavesdrop on our professional conversations. Listen, learn, and immediately add to your bag of teaching tricks. Find what works for your students with us in the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Hi, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Um, Today we are um, going to be talking about read-alouds to boost comprehension. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Molly Ness. And um, we are so excited to meet with you and chat and learn about um, all the things that you can share with us. So thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Molly, can you share with us? um, We just recently met you in the online sphere. So if anyone listening is not familiar with you, can you tell us about your teaching experiences, um, your education, like how you were trained as a teacher, and then what's your current role in literacy? Sure. Um, So I started um, my career as a classroom teacher out in Oakland, California. Um, I did teach for America thinking I was going to kind of pause on my way to law school. Um, And I always joke that However many years, 25, 30 years later, my father has finally accepted that I'm not going to law school, um, (laughs) but quickly recognized that um, public education and specifically literacy was a social justice issue that um, I really cared about, but I needed to know a lot more. So I came back east and uh, did a doctorate in reading education at the University of Virginia. Um, and then I took a position as a professor at Fordham University, which is um, the Graduate School of Education is smack in the middle of, of New York City, probably, gosh, 20 blocks, 15 blocks north of Broadway and Times Square and such. Um, and I spent 17 years there um, as a professor, I mostly was responsible for early career and pre-service teacher education, um, teaching the literacy methods courses, but also did a fair amount of work with doctoral students. Um, and I, I, so I always think of myself as a teacher of teachers. Um, I do a fair amount of work as well with literacy organizations. I sit on the board of directors for the International Literacy Association, as well as um, I'm a chapter founder for the Reading League, the New York State um, chapter. And I, the way that I think about my career is I read about reading and I write about reading. Um, when I was a doctoral student, I learned what we are now calling the science of reading. It was the way that I was trained. Um, only then we didn't call it the science of reading. We just called it um, evidence-based research or scientifically-based research. Um, and so I look at this particular moment in time as really exciting when there's so many conversations about reading instruction, um, podcasts and documentary films and social media and such. Um, as much as I am excited about this time, I'm also a little um, a little frustrated, sort of like what took the rest of everybody so long to catch up? I mean, you know, you look at the, the data and the data is stagnant and it has been that way for too long. Um, so I'm grateful for this time, but I also um, am cautious that 
we have to recognize it took us a long time to get here. It's also going to take a long time to make forward progress. So I hope we have the, the stamina and the patience and determination to really stick with effective reading instruction um, more than just as a short-term fix. Yes, and big claps because, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really what we have been focusing this season, last season, and the previous season on. Um, and I think that what you nailed was um, our call for, you know, things were just not working in the classroom for us. And um, we we were questioning, you know, what what is it that that's the miss? So um, something that I love that you encompass in your new book, your new book is called Read Alouds for All Learners. It really coaches teachers through how to use read alouds as that scaffolding, the tool to really help students understand and use their metacognition as they're reading through and how to use the strategies for um, using engaging text. So I, I really love that. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about, about the read-alouds. How, how can the read-alouds then foster comprehension? Let's kind of dig right in. Sure. Um, well, sort of the backstory of the book is I was um, down the, the the rabbit hole of social media and following some conversations about the science of reading and, and saw this conversation that said that the there's no room for read-alouds in the science of reading. And um, immediately was just taken aback and wanted to, you know, post and respond and knew that was probably not a productive use of my time. So instead, really dug into the research around read-alouds, um, which is a long-standing body of research and also has some really interesting, compelling new information. Um, we know that read-alouds are really the, the prime way to support students' language comprehension. There's been so much attention on the word decoding components of the science of reading, of, of what I often call lifting the words off the page, phonics and decoding and uh, sight recognition and such. Um, and if we don't explicitly address language comprehension, the ability for, for students to understand and make sense of what they're reading, then um, we're not really going to see any gains in, in at not only our students' reading scores, but also their ability to proficiently read text. So a read aloud is so powerful because it is the way to expose students to sophisticated vocabulary. It is the way to enhance and build background knowledge and exposure to language structure and all of those things that are on that top part of the unconstrained skills in uh, in Hollis Scarborough, Scarborough's reading rope. Um, so not only is there a place for read-alouds, but I actually think they are non-negotiable. Pre-K through grade eight classrooms, um, they are a daily non-negotiable. They're a get to do, should do, want to do, have to do. And just as you said earlier, that when you think back to some of your teaching and things weren't resonating, um, my read-alouds were not resonating either. I use them as sort of a, a, a calming time. My kids would come back from lunch and recess and were crazy and just needed sort of to calm down and refocus, but I didn't explicitly plan them to, to bring out the instructional opportunities um, that the book presented. And so that's what this book that I wrote um, is meant to help teachers do. And it really does. Like I am 
I'm guilty of that too. Like I use read alouds to calm them down after specials. And then also as a big community building experience in my classroom. And I mean, even my former students from 20 years ago will still come to me and contact me on Facebook and say, remember that book you read aloud? Now it's a movie. You know? um, so, I mean, it, it did, it did its job in that respect, but what you, first off, you know, so much research. I mean, the way you explain the research in this book, it's like, it just, you read a lot of stories. I can tell I mean, a lot of research studies. And then you just explain it in a way that makes it so practical. And then you bring an intentionality to the read aloud plan. And so it's not just this haphazard, like little piece of your classroom and instruction, but it's a big piece of your classroom instruction. And then you're able to weave so many standards into the experience. And I just appreciate this book a lot that you you break it down and exactly how to do that as a teacher and not just say, Oh, you should do it, but this is how to do it. Well, I appreciate that because yeah, when I think back to my read alouds, my planning was um, how many pages I was going to cover each day. So I would spend, you know, like many teachers, I would spend Sunday afternoon um, sort of thinking about the week ahead and I would look back at my chapter book or, or picture book that I was reading and say, all right, you know, Tuesday, I'll probably cover this page to that page. And um, I was surprised when I found research that um, surveys um, early childhood classroom teachers and 50 to 70% of them don't plan their read alouds. And by no means am I saying, you know, teacher shaming, teacher blaming here, because I did the same thing. Um, but what we know is that when those read-alouds are just focused on sort of what text you're going to cover and how many pages, we um, we miss instructional opportunities. We see teacher discourse as more surface level. Um, we miss opportunities to enhance comprehension. And so I really started to think about, um, particularly about what I needed to do prior to my read-alouds to make them impactful, powerful, um, something that can engage kids after the text is done um, and relevant to all content areas. That's a, um, a big thing that I try to, to, to push is that we have to sort of get past the notion that a read-aloud is like we're in our rocking chair and it's 15 minutes of our kids just wrapped attention in front of us on the carpet because a seventh grade teacher can read aloud from a speech of a historical fiction character that they are looking at or a um, gym teacher as they're starting a new um, a new unit on volleyball. Well, you know, perfect time to read aloud from the rules of the volleyball association or a science teacher talking about climate can read aloud from um, newspapers, which um, are featuring similar stories. So there's so many ways to integrate it that it doesn't have to be sort of what we often in our mind picture as like the ideal read aloud. Yeah. I really appreciated that, that part um, in, in your book this time. And not only are you just saying, hey, this is what um, what art teachers and, and PE teachers should be doing, but you also give examples of what this looks like and how you can actually engage. And so I really appreciate it, especially I would say like in the art content area, how you can take an excerpt from um, a book and have kids work on visualizing, for example, and have the students like then sketch and draw what you were, you know, what you just read and how that is a, a content skill that applies to learning to read and using comprehension strategies in a meaningful way in a different area that's not just with the reading 
text um, that, that you would say. And then not only that, it brings in other interests. And so not only are you giving um, a super great suggestion, but I think that most teachers, because we've gotten feedback from a lot of teachers about this, there is so much joy in the read aloud. Many of us, you know, think back to our own, you know, schooling career and think, oh, I just loved it when my teacher read this book. And I think what we sort of touched on at the beginning was true for me too. Oh, that was a nostalgic book. I would really like to read that to my students as well. And it doesn't always hit the same way um, with different generations too. Yeah, you bring up that in the book where you said um, you tried to read the hatchet with your students and it kind of fell short. Mm-hmm. I, I remember it clearly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the point about joy um, because we as teachers often just adore the read aloud and um, our kids do as, as well. Um, as you said earlier, there are kids that you connect with years down the road who are like, I remember. And I had that experience in my childhood. It was Miss Fagan. She read um, Roll Dolls BFG. Uh, that was one of the ones I read. And it's <laughs> not, and you know, kudos to you because that is not an easy book to read aloud because there's so much made up language yeah. that you have right. to decode. Um, I was interested in research that I found that showed that um, something called the decline at nine, which this research term comes from Scholastic and their kids and family reports. Um, and what we see is that read alouds at home and at school tend to decline at the age of nine. So right around third and fourth grade, um, parents and teachers think read alouds are too babyish or kids can read on their own. So there's no need for them. And um, I think about that as a parent. I think about that as a teacher. And I, yeah, I was guilty of that. But what we know, which I think is even more powerful, is that kids say, I wish they didn't stop reading to me. I wish the read aloud continued. Um, and so I think once we know that it is that Yes, powerful, impactful, you know, learning opportunity, but it's also a way to build a community for kids to um, associate reading and joy. It is one of the best ways, as shown in research, for kids to start identifying themselves as readers and to build their independent reading motivation. So I'm all for all of the research that shows, you know, the academic benefits, the um, linguistic benefits, but we also have to be mindful that there are socio-emotional benefits and those are equally as powerful um, as, as the ones that are just looking at sort of quantifiable skills. I'm so glad you touched on that piece because I think that that is so true. I remember um, it was a non-academic um, camp that I was in, um, in middle school. And I remember that we used picture books as a way to talk about, so, uh, about social emotional learning. And I think we might've read like the rainbow fish or something like that. And even as like a 13 year old, it hit so differently. And I remember then, you know, in my college studies too, going back and reading children's literature and it hits differently, um, at the different ages. So I think that it's okay to reintroduce books um, for social learning purposes and, and really like engaging in those conversations as well. Um, and I love that you kind of talk about that. And then you're super thoughtful um, in the plan uh, when, when you go about doing that. So I'm wondering, can you share a little bit about, um, uh, about the read aloud planning template that you have? Sure. Um, so I created a three-step sort of planning protocol that is 
relevant for all teachers, pre-K through eight, doesn't matter if you're doing a historical fiction book or a chapter book or um, a poem or what have you. And um, basically, I plan in three steps. The first step, and they all start with E um, to, to facilitate memory. The first step is evaluate. This is the work that I, as a teacher, do prior to um, reading aloud. I evaluate the text for potential comprehension breakdowns, as well as instructional opportunities. And my favorite part of this planning process um, is evaluating for background knowledge. What does the text assume that I, as the reader, bring to the page? Um, Because if I don't have that knowledge, if I don't have that life experience, I'm setting my kids up for a comprehension breakdown. So I'm really intentional about thinking about what is um, an area that I need to enhance and build and um, jog and and facilitate for kids. Can I interrupt you for a second? Because in, in your book, I learned a new term in addition to background knowledge, funds of knowledge. Yeah. So you look you look for two different things when you are doing that evaluation. Can you explain to our audience what funds of knowledge are? Yeah, and I uh, I'm glad that you picked that up because funds of knowledge were new to me as well. Okay. I had talked about background knowledge. Some of us think about content knowledge. Um, in 1992, researchers wrote about funds of knowledge, and so this is not new research. It is just um, not as well known. Funds of knowledge are sort of the um, information and experiences that we have by existing in our communities. And um, funds of knowledge to me are sort of like the social cues that we all have to navigate to live our daily lives in our communities as well as in the world. So for an example, um, funds of knowledge, if I were to um, run into um, a, a friend here, um, a, a friend in my community, I might say, hey, what's up? How are you? And give her a hug. Now, if I were meeting um, a uh, business acquaintance, I might shake their hand. Um, if I were in Japan, I might bow to them. If I were in Europe, I might do the the, the double kiss cheek thing. So knowing what to do in what situation based on who you are encountering is a fund of knowledge. Um, and they're specific to um, our cultures, our communities, and um, really help us navigate the world. So to me, that information was super, super compelling that there's not just sort of content knowledge, background knowledge, domain knowledge, but there's also just these social nuances that interact that that we have to navigate on a daily basis. And so you brought it alive to me when you described the Nuffle Bunny plan. Yeah. Um, because you said, because I, I just would have assumed that the students would have understood about the laundromat and walking the block and things like that. But you were explaining that that's more of a funds of knowledge versus background knowledge. Yeah. So the beloved Mo, Mo Willems picture book, um, has not just background knowledge, like you got to know what a laundromat is, um, which not every kid does. You also have to know that in the family's house, the father goes and does the laundry while the mother stays back. Well, if you're not, that's not your family structure. That's not your norm. You're already struggling with comprehension because you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on there? Um, If you're in a family that you've had to move a lot or you don't have extra resources for a 
beloved stuffed animal or a blankie or whatever, and that's just not part of your family, the whole story to you is a struggle with comprehension because you're like, why do they care about this ratty old stuffed animal? Um, and all of those, we sort of assume that our kids will get and that we can't assume, we can't, um, we can't just assume that they know them because otherwise we're setting them up for deficits in comprehension. So in that first stage, I evaluate for all of those potential. And it's kind of just a, a laundry list of this might be a potential imp uh, impeder to comprehension. And do you include vocabulary in that area? I hold vocabulary until the second step. Okay. Okay. For the most part. Um, but what I do is then I get this whole laundry list of things that, okay, this could be problematic, or they might not be familiar with this. And then I can have some fun and bring in my teacher innovation and creativity and think about ways to build their background knowledge. So if we're with the book, uh, Knuffle Bunny, maybe I bring in my favorite stuffed animal, or maybe I just do a Google slide of here's a laundromat. This is what it looks like. Um, so there's so many ways that we can kind of pre-teach and front load but we have to be aware of where those breakdowns arise um, in order to head them off. Mm -hmm. So in the second step, this is the step that I'm actually like doing and conducting the read aloud. Um, I explain. So in explaining, I think about two buckets of vocabulary. So there's the bucket of words to teach, meaning we want to do some rich instruction around them. We want to say the words, give them student-friendly definitions, use them in different contexts, like teach them to a level where we might hear kids use them on the playground or in their writing or what have you. And then there are also those words that you just got to understand in the moment and then move on. So I was thinking about a... Um, a picture book, a William Steig picture book called Brave Irene, um, which uses the word duchess. So I was reading this to a class of kids who live in New York City, pretty urban life. The word duchess, are they going to use in their everyday, you know, playground talk, cafeteria talk, writing? No. But so I'm not going to waste my precious instructional time teaching it, but they have to understand it in that moment. So I can just say as I'm reading, Duchess is another word for a princess. And most kids know princess because of we live in a Disney world and they're just, you know, get exposure to that. So I'm, I'm intentional about words to teach versus words to just explain and move on. And then also in that second step, I use think alouds. And a think aloud is um, when I, as a proficient reader, crack open my head and talk through the invisible process that I'm using to model comprehension. I use lots and lots of first person narrative language. So I might show my kids how I make an inference by saying, I'm getting the sense that, or I'm noticing a clue that the author gave me. All of that first person language lets us um, model our thinking and make what is an invisible process visible to kids. And we know there's so much power in think alouds. I'm happy to share the research on them. Um, but we know that when kids get that modeling, not only are they more likely to understand the text they're encountering in that moment, but they're also more likely to transfer that thinking to their independent reading, which is, you know, one of the big things we want our kids to do. So then in the third step, I've reached the end of the book and um, I think back to my first years of teaching and, you know, we finished the chapter, we finished the read aloud and 
I might do something, you know, write a summary or something sort of at a, at a surface level, but not really um, enhancing literacy opportunities, socio-emotional opportunities, and cross-curricular opportunities. So in this step, I um, engage and extend. So I engage my kids in literacy-rich opportunities to build reading, writing, speaking, and listening. Um, so I think of I sort of generate a whole list of things that I might do to improve kids' understanding of the text as well as their retention of it. I also think through socio-emotional com components and learning. Um, and then I think through cross-curricular extensions. I know that um, when I was a teacher, my kids, if I explicitly talked about something in my social studies and English class that the core teacher next to me who taught math and science, if we had like overlap, they all freaked out. They're like, oh, he just talked about that in science. And now we're talking about that in social studies. And what we know is that when kids get information um, that is similar, but it is across either tech sets or curricular um, connections, that um, powerful learning happens. So in that last step, I think through all of those opportunities, and of, and of course I can't do them all, you know, time's short and precious, um, but I sort of generate a laundry list of if I had time or here's what I might do um, to really continue the opportunities of that read aloud after the last page has been read. Mm -hmm. Well, one of my favorite quotes from the chapter about engage and extend, I think just reflects even more of like a big idea around your teaching and that it's not just about the standards and it's not just about what we're getting the kids to learn, but you say you want to invite students as readers, thinkers, and human beings into conversation, reflection, and inquiry about the text and I love that because we've talked about that before on the podcast of just like we're building a community of people and we're, we're, we're training people. It's not just we have them for a year and we're just teaching them the third grade standards or whatever. And so I love that, that when you are planning your extension activities, you're thinking, you're inviting them to think as humans and develop as humans and not just let's master this standard, let's do this activity, let's do some busy work. I just I just like that you elevate it to that level. Well, thank you. And that's what we as adult readers do, whether we, we are- do. Book club. Book club, mm -hmm. 100%. Or whether we are reading, you know, we're going on a beach vacation and we're choosing a, you know, chick lit kind of mindless book. We don't read it with the purpose of like, I'm going to turn it into a diorama. We read it to entertain or we read it to think about something or we read it to connect um, with somebody else or to learn. And so, um, yeah, I'm really mindful that um, reaching kids, not only as readers and writers and thinkers, um, but who they are as human beings. Yeah, I'd I like really like that part too. Go ahead. Excuse me. Um, I also want to go back to what you were explaining about um, think alouds, because mm -hmm. I think that's super important because we spend a lot of time. At, I've been learning a lot about the science of reading and kind of the, about comprehension as I've been preparing for these group of episodes. And what I've seen, you know, is that we spend a lot of time working on the product of comprehension, like answering comprehension questions and doing the main idea and doing graphic organizers. But comprehension isn't a product, it's a process that the students are doing in their minds to make meaning and construct meaning from the text. And so you taking you doing read alouds and spending extended time doing that 
think aloud and making that invisible visible is more instructional time on the process of comprehension. Sure. Um, I came to read uh, think alouds um, when I was working as a doctoral student. I worked for four years as a reading clinician at our reading clinic. And um, I had a kid that I was tutoring for years, same kid. And I had gobs of data, quantitative data, observational data, all the data in the world to show me that his comprehension was his area of weakness. He struggled to understand. And I caught myself one day asking him questions like we often do. Where did the character go next? You know, what do you think might happen? All of this. And then I kind of like had this almost sort of like metaphoric, like slap in the face where I was like, what am I doing? I already know he's struggling to comprehend. Why am I asking him questions that merely assess his comprehension? They don't build it. They are not make meaning more. And so that's what a think aloud does. It is literally me modeling what I am doing so that you as a kid are more likely to do it on your own. And think alouds are not just regard, not just uh, relevant to comprehension. I always, when I work with teachers, I always say like, you've done a think aloud. You just don't know you've done it. If you've taught a kindergartner to tie their shoelaces and you say, first, I'm going to take one loop and pull it through the other in my bunny ears. Or if you've taught a, uh, if you've had the, the the fear or the thrill of teaching a kid how to drive, you've done a think aloud. First, I'm going to put on my blinker. Next, I'm going to check my rear view mirrors. That's a think aloud. And it, it's to me, the, the focus of am I using my teacher language to model and build or am I using it to assess and monitor? And too often we do assess and monitor. And so I want to switch it to monitor and, uh, and, and facilitate and build. And that's where think aloud. I love that. I think that in my own mind and in my own language, when I say like explicitly teach something to, you know, and I always kind of come back to my example of my round table in my special ed intervention group. Um, I was literally trying so hard to open my brain and share that knowledge. And so I, I imagine that as explicitly teaching, but I think that that's just my own language behind it, but I really appreciate how you do this. And additionally, in your book too, you have these sentence starters for teachers to help them navigate what does a think aloud actually, what does the language start to look like? So your scaffolding for teachers in this is really great too, because I think, um, if I were to be listening to this, and this is my own modeling, if I were listening to this and I hadn't read through all of your book yet, I might think, oh no, that means I have to create another lesson plan, um, which is not really the case. The way that you have scaffolded this, it teaches you to think through the process and what is the language that you need to do to think through the process, which for me, it hits these three big areas. One, it solves the problem in um, my favorite way to teach is through a, a read aloud or a picture story read aloud and, and modeling thinking that way. Two, we're working on this language comprehension, which we know is not addressed strongly enough in schools. And three, you've done the work to get me started. So at the end of each of your um, um, chapters, you also have these calls to action, which are also ways that you question the reader how can I move on from this point or what, how can I reflect on this? And I, it's probably from your time as a professor, (laughs) um, knowing that this is how you need to address people, but I really appreciate it in this book. And I think that's what makes it approachable and easy to understand, um, for the everyday classroom teacher. 
Well, I appreciate that. I always, when I um, work with teachers and write for teachers, um, I always keep two frames of reference in mind. First of all, myself, when I was a first year teacher and so overwhelmed. (laughs) Uh, And then my university students who were like, don't throw theory at me. Tell me what I'm doing Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock. And the the sentence starters, we've all probably heard the expression that uh, teaching is begging, borrowing and stealing. And so those sentence starters are like literally there for you to steal. It is, um, you know, there's 10 different ways to generate an inference, or there's eight different ways to model a synthesis. Um, Try these sentence starters out um, and figure out which ones work for you, figure out which ones work for your kids. Um, And I will say that those come from um, this book that we're talking about now is my my fifth book. Um, My third one was from Corwin Press was all about think alouds and the power of them and how to use them. And so those came from that book. um, And um, have been really well received because of the practicability of the easeability. Um, and they're just, they're ready to go. They're applicable to any text and help people sort of try something out in a supported scaffolded way um, and, until they find their own, their own way. Are you looking for your literacy soul sister? Teacher bestie you haven't met yet? Someone to provide support and guidance for the ever-increasing demands and responsibilities you face at school? Here in the Reading Teachers Lounge, we understand the challenges that dedicated reading teachers like you are dealing with every day. We've been in your shoes and are ready to help you navigate through any struggles that are leaving you drained and overwhelmed. Through our Patreon levels of support, we deepen the conversation for you to learn more about how to improve your students' literacy skills, boost your confidence in the classroom, and discover actual ways to work smarter, not harder. Our coaching offers small group or one-on-one sessions tailored to address your unique needs and goals. When you join, you immediately receive regular encouragement, monthly learning sessions, demonstrations of strategies and techniques, updates on our current reading instructional practices, and the resources that we're using, and much, much more. Visit patreon.com backslash reading teachers lounge to learn details and find out how to try out a free week of any level of support. Just imagine a teaching experience where you feel fully supported and are no longer struggling in isolation. We'll help you figure out the right things to do to reach all of your readers. Feel better about your teaching today by joining the Reading Teachers Lounge Patreon. need to have you back to talk about think alouds mm-hmm. as well because um that sounds great we can link the um the think alouds i wrote it down absolutely too. i want to read sure. it next it's i appreciate when i started um thinking when i started working around think alouds i struggled with them they mm-hmm. didn't be natural to me mm-hmm. and i got to the point where like actually last night my kid and i um it was one of those days that i had a long day i we were trying to make it our way out the door to hockey practice so we ordered in and I'm thinking aloud through the delivery money. Do I want, you know, I haven't had my vegetables today. So maybe I should. And my kid was like, can you just order your entree and stop doing <laughs> things aloud? Um, being like, once you get proficient with them and once you understand the purpose of them, you can you can't all. turn it off. <laughs> totally. <laughs> my That's poor great. kid. <laughs> Love that. Mary, I, I, thought, I think you brought up a good point that um, 
this isn't just yet another lesson plan. And I think we need to definitely mention that. Like I, what you provide in this book, Molly, is like a framework for yeah. like thinking about your read aloud. But all you would have to do is first off, read the read aloud before you read it to the class, which I have, I've also done I've it where it's a cold read. Too. And it there's less teachable opportunities if you do that. So sure. like I'm, I'm seeing the error of my ways there, but go ahead and read the time. You know, you could read it at night. You could read it, you know, um, on a sunny afternoon or whatever. And then you could be thinking through those three E steps yep. on your drive to school. You, you show us how you write it down. You even in one of your chapters, like explicitly, like as if we were observing you teach it, mm-hmm. how it would look, but you're not expecting that level of detail when the teacher's actually doing it on the go. You're just sort of explaining, you know, you're making your own visible invisible planning process visible to us. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, and um, I'm always mindful that teachers are super, super busy. And so um, I don't want anybody to look at the planning process and be like, you expect me to do this for every single book I'm going to read aloud, like, you know, dream on lady. Um, <laughs> but it is the sort of safety blanket that helps me understand the process until I get, um, until I get really comfortable with it. I think back to myself as an early career teacher, and we wrote out the lesson plans with the objectives and every thumbtack and, you know, sentence strip that we were going to use. And then we all get to the point where, you know, we can jot three words on a sticky note and know what those three words mean for a 45 minute lesson. Um, Because we've gone through the explicitness as the initial steps, as the safety blanket. Um, And so I model in the book, um, really three different texts, a K through two text, a three through five text, a six through eight text, um, so that people can see how the intentionality and then make it work for them and make it work for their time frame and their students. I think you bring up just now a good point I wanted to ask about is that, you know, you've made a very good case in this conversation and also in the book, which is titled Read Aloud for All Learners, and you explicitly state through the whole book, it is not just for little kids, it is for all the way to grade eight or above. But can you explain a little bit in kind of quick terms how what you show the difference in those kind of three grade bands? What is that instructional focus? What is that, you know, that purpose of that read aloud for those different age groups? So um, for all of my read alouds, the focus is language comprehension, vocabulary, background knowledge. There's um, really lovely data that shows that Kids um, in their everyday conversation and through um, TV and such don't hear the sophisticated vocabulary words that are in a picture book, a chapter book, whatever we're reading aloud. And we also know um, that kids' listening comprehension exceeds their reading comprehension until about grade seven or eight. So to me, there is, you know, always a time and a place um, for read alouds. Um, For me, some of my content area read-alouds may be a little bit different. Um, So if I were, you know, a a seventh grade science teacher, I might read aloud with more focus on um, taking a sophisticated science concept and building the background knowledge to make it clear because um, the texts that kids are using be a basal reader or a, you know, their typical science textbook. 
doesn't present the information in a way that's as concise, as clear, as engaging. Um, and so I focus on those ones a little bit more on content, knowledge, and domain-specific stuff, and maybe a little less on the sort of literacy, socio-emotional components. Um, but the framework for me is pretty similar. What am I going to do to prepare and support kids before the text? What are the comprehension breakdowns? Um, I'm going to model a think aloud just as much in a content area cl uh, classroom as I would in a sort of stereotypical first grade picture book. And then afterwards, think about what I'm doing to enhance their comprehension and retention of the material after the last page has been read. Yeah, I, I love I, I don't think that we've touched on this enough, but I think that the examples that you give. Um, and then even in your appendices, how to search for these high quality read alouds. You gave a whole list um, of incredible books and some that I knew and some that I was not familiar with and things that have now like really piqued my attention, especially yeah. in different content areas too, yeah. in the areas of math, um, not just grapes of math, which is something that I, you know, constantly like have that as one of my um, go-tos. But um, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that one of the like really valuable pieces of your book is your, your appendix that has all of these lists of books and then other resources and places you can go to find more lists of books that are the high quality books that you may be searching for related to your content area or area of study. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, it's impossible to stay on top of how many books are coming out on a daily basis. And I will say that um, data show that um, data that surveys that have been inquiring about teacher selection of the text that they read aloud, the vast majority of read alouds are fiction and they are relatively outdated. They're sort of the 25 year um, old text. And in no way am I poo-pooing, you know, corduroy and Miss Nelson is missing and such. But um, as you said earlier, um, exploring some of the current text offers opportunities and um, perspectives that don't always appear in, um, in more familiar text. So I really encourage people to step outside of their comfort zone and um, investigate some of those more current texts, the diversity of them, the topics around some of them. Um, I'm a super big fan of... Um, sort of historical fiction and picture books that tell about contributions, um, unknown contributions from um, lesser known people or people who have faced adversity. So for example, one of my favorite picture books is um, the William Hoy story. It is about a deaf baseball player um, who the reason that we still to this day have signals, signals between the umpire and the pitcher, signals between the coach and the batter, we have William Hoy to thank for those. Um, and, you know, great opportunity for a gym teacher to have conversations about, hey, that signal that you just got, do you know where that came from? Let me read you a book about that. And there are just so many books that are coming out on a daily basis that um, do that, that, that focus on those untold stories. Um, and, you know, by the second I publish a book with like, here are my favorite titles, it's already outdated. So <laughs> it's better for me to, to kind of give places that people can explore on their own. And um, yeah, I definitely stand on the shoulders of some of my colleagues who do a really fabulous job writing about how to select a book. So I'm kind of coming in writing this book saying, 
you've already selected your book. Now let's get you started in the planning process. Um, but that those titles are listed in uh, the appendices as well. Yeah, I, I love that. I was going to also do a little plug for your podcast too, because you have a podcast called um, End Book Deserts. And um, it has more to do with like corporations who support um, uh, sharing books in, in areas where books may not be as prevalent or relevant. But I have really enjoyed some of the guests that you've had on on some of your shows too. Um, I'm particularly thinking of um, like the drag um, story hour, which is something I've been familiar with for a long time. And I think it's just so unique, but, um, especially how, when, um, when these individuals are reading about how, um, dramatic it can be and how they have actually been so thoughtful and, and thinking about how, um, they create the characters and bring to life this story in a really theatrical way. And I thought that was a super great episode as well. So I wanted to plug for that one. It was great. Yeah. The, um, the statistics around book access are gobsmacking. So I started this podcast about, gosh, pandemics made us all lose sense of time, but I guess it was about five years ago um, because I came to research that showed that 32 million American kids in this day and age, this is, this is current research, lack access to books in their homes, schools, and communities. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about making our kids lifelong readers and proficient readers. Well, how are they going to do that if they don't have books? Um, and so when I started this podcast, I kind of just wanted to bring awareness to this because it was a statistic that I, as a reading researcher, did not know. Um, And moreover, I wanted to share the stories of the people and programs who are doing really innovative work to get books to kids wherever they are. And um, I will say the, the programs and people out there are just amazing. Like, for example, um, there's something called United Through Reading. Every single military base in the country has a recording studio where a parent who is deployed can go into this re- reading studio and read a book to their child, because if they're deployed, you know, that kid might be missing the, uh, the, the comfort of a bedtime story. Um, so they read aloud to their child. United Through Reading helps choose the book. They help with the recording. They send the virtual recording to the kid as well as a copy of the book. Um, There are similar programs for parents who are uh, incarcerated. There are programs um, for kids who um, there's there's literacy corners in uh, laundromats as well as beauty parlors and salons, which are um, often in the black community, sort of a, a cornerstone of the, um, of the, of the community. So there's just so much stuff going on, book vending machines, you know, teachers who ride their bicycles um, into areas and give out books that um, I just wanted to showcase those because lots of us are saying, oh, you know, would be great, but I don't have books. Um, well, there's probably now about 50 episodes of the people in programs who are doing that work to get books to kids. Super great. I love, I love this effort too. And we'll make sure that we link to your podcast as well for some of our listeners. And um, Molly, I was just reading um, a geodes decodable with my students this week, and it was called the story ship. And it was about, have you heard of this? It's in Norway. And it, um, it, it's a little boat that brings books um, through the fjords, like, and brings uh, so that the students can get books because they live so remotely, they can't get to a library. Wow. You know, and there's um, 
There's actually, um, there's one also, um, I don't know that one, but there's a great picture book um, called My Librarian is a Camel. And it features um, international efforts to get books to kids, be it if your librarian is a camel and some of these kids in the Middle East or um, your, uh, there's some kids living down in South America who use, you know, donkeys and such. And um, it's just this really heartwarming picture, uh, picture book about all of the ways to get access to books. And it should not be an issue anymore because books, they don't have a shelf life. There's no expiration date. They're easily transportable. There's no like kind of human being that has to be, you know, it's not like knowledge in my head that I have to get the human there. Um, These are easily distributable and it's still um, not happening in too many communities. Great, great work. Really amazing. Can you share any other book titles? Um, like I loved the one. Can you describe the one about the uh, the Japanese grandparents in the library? Oh gosh, I, I had love never heard of that library. book, but it was sounds so sweet. Oh, love at the library. So I love um, books also that are um, based on true stories, and then you get to the end, and there's the author's note. Um, love at the library, and I also love books about books and reading culture and libraries mm. and such. Um, so, Love at the Library is a relatively new-ish scholastic book that um, takes place in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. Talk about background knowledge your kids are not going to have. Lots of pre-teaching needs to go into that. Um, so, the book tells the story of a young man and woman who meet at the Japanese internment camp in the library and fall in love and then subsequently build a life together. They have children together. And at the end of the book, you find out that the author of the book was the grandchild of um, this actual couple. And so it's um, this lovely book that talks about how books connect us and the full range of human emotions And a great book to sort of, I also love books, I think I sort of hit on this earlier, that are like the untold stories. Well, there's not a lot um, about, if you went to the average like seventh grader, if I told her she's now studying World War II, she knows about concentration camps, she knows about, you know, the, the Nazi regime, but does she know that our country had, you know, internment camps? Probably not. So great picture book to give her background knowledge about kind of an untold story yeah it's oh that one I was just like it just sounded like it sounded like a sweet story because like the the man was just going to get books you know and she the librarian thought he was just going to get books but then really he was going there to meet her too I just think that is so precious a little love story too and it's um and one of the some of the most beautiful language in it is um to fall in love is a miracle but to fall in love in a setting of these internment camps which is you know human despair and such is even more of a miracle and so the language is really gorgeous wow story of hope really amazing well, wow. we we encourage everybody to check out your book because like literally like on every page you turn, there's another book title suggestion. And I'm like, I had never heard of this one. I had never heard of this one. I had never heard of this one. So my Amazon cart is going to be full. And my, I apologize. My stack is going to be full. <laughs> yes. Anytime that I always joke, like anytime I go to a webinar or a conference where people are talking about books, I'm like, just take my credit card. And like, <laughs> yeah. um, it's costing me a lot, but you know, um, of all of the vices that I could have, 
buying too many books is I think a, um, a pretty, a pretty okay vice to deal with. So <laughs> I've always said that too. I, um, I think that um, this book is, is for me, it's the one bridge that I really needed for teaching language comprehension. And I'll say that because um, I am an interventionist. And mm-hmm. so I am constantly like, okay, we have to get kids to decode. If they can't decode, how are they ever even going to get the language? And so that part is really essential. But I really love how you have so clearly articulated this need, um, but also allowed for so much teacher creativity. I think that I walk this fine line as a special ed teacher of you know, how explicit and how much direct instruction do I need and, and how much control do I have in that um, and, and making sure that I show fidelity and things like that. Your book, I feel like, is such a great bridge for that because it really helps teachers like me make all of this also accessible um, in a way that feels like I can handle it. I really appreciate that. My other piece is that I went to a liberal arts college and I got my degree in elementary education. And I very distinctly remember going to my professor in my master's program and being like, okay, but you're telling me I have to do direct instruction. That's boring. And I am a creative and I have been taught that I have these abilities to create these fantastic lesson plans for my students. And he's like, but are you doing it with fidelity? And I went, oh, like brain exploding. So I feel like you have just created this amazing bridge for me so that I, I mean, I know it's existed and it's taken me years to figure it out, but this, this really does help. And I think especially for novice teachers, this can be a really nice way to help with the science of reading on this end of Scarborough's reading rope. Which that um, I appreciate the kind words. And yes, there is a, not just plenty of space um, for read alouds in um, the science of reading, but more importantly, there is a need for read alouds yes. in the science of reading. You yes. definitely make the case for that. So we appreciate this. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything else you want our audience to know about read alouds or no, I, but I do just want to um, extend a profound um, thank you and gratitude to any listener who um, identifies themselves as somebody who cares deeply about public education and teaching and instruction. It is a really hard time um, to be somebody who is working in school buildings and, um, and I say that it's always been hard to be a teacher now more than ever. It is really hard to be a teacher. And um, I always say that as a teacher of teachers, I do the easy work. I write articles. I write books. Like I'm not in there every day with kids and um, str- overburdened with workloads and all of those things that we know that um, are on teachers' plates. So thank you. Um, and I absolutely recognize this is a profession, which does not get enough recognition, respect, um, all of those things. So please know that um, if you are somebody who works in schools, you have my uh, profound respect, um, not just as a professional, but also as a parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I have to commend you on that because I totally agree with that as well. Great. Oh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, so I can't to wait to you. dive in more about Think Alouds later because you are on the top of my list. <laughs> I love that. Well, um, I'm so grateful for the work that you guys do and for the time that you've carved out um, to talk about this. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you. Take care and thanks again.